Bob, let's say I'm a beginning screenwriter. Where would I begin to research film history so I could broaden my perspective of storytelling? <clears throat> I think a wonderful place to begin is at the beginning uh, and um, look at the entire history of movies uh, because the situation at the beginning was kind of like we are right now. Uh, when movies began, nobody knew what this business would ever turn into. Uh, and no one really knew how to tell a story, and so they winged it. Uh, and you had the Lumiere brothers uh, sending guys out onto the street with tripods and cameras and making 40-second movies. And you had Georges Mendes, um, you know, concocting little fantasies uh, in the studio. Uh, and in their own primitive way, they were attempting to figure out how to tell stories in film. Uh, and so I personally think that's the greatest place to begin at all. It's simple, it's easy, and it's clear uh, because the challenges in making movies are always the same no matter what kind of uh, material, what kind of equipment you're using. Uh, you always want to attempt to find some kind of sympathetic character, and it's going to be a struggle, and there's going to be the three acts, and that stuff doesn't ever go away. Uh, and I think, I find, that when you begin to look at some of the movies from the past, you begin to get some perspective on who you are and the kind of story you want to tell, and what it owes to some of the world in the past. I guess it was Alan Watts, the, the Zen philosopher, who said something about the ocean and the fish, and everybody knows it, but I'll repeat it anyway, which is, uh, I don't know who it was who discovered the ocean, but it certainly wasn't the fish. And uh, we are fish in our own little ocean here, uh, and I think it helps to get out of that little contemporary ocean a little bit, and to look at other possibilities, other times, uh, when filmmakers were attempting to tell stories in movies or make documentaries in movies um, because then it gives you a level of freedom that you don't have otherwise. Once you're outside of it, once you can step out outside your little moment in time and your world, uh, you then have a kind of choice. You can say, I love it. It's fantastic. I want to get right back into it. Or else you can say, I'm out of there. Uh, I see it a different way and I want to tell stories differently, I want to be a different kind of filmmaker, I want to be a different kind of person. So my answer is uh, start at the beginning and work your way through. That's really what my book is all about. So with the beginning, those were the talkies, right? Is that Well, no, the, I want to no. go back, I want to go Even way before the talkies, I want to go to the silence. The silence, yeah, okay. I, I want okay. to go to... Uh, Sorry, so, I meant, I'm, forgive yeah. me. I, 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 I want to go back to uh, sort of uh, Georges Méliès, uh, prancing around in this little studio in Paris, uh, making those imaginary kind of movies uh, that uh, Martin Scorsese sort of uh, looked back on with fondness in Hugo. Um, you know. Um, what so year was this? Sorry. What, what year was uh, the first was, silent film? Well, sir, first silent film was 1895. Uh, and uh, 1895, um, a couple of filmmakers, uh, the Lumiere brothers, who were the sons of a prominent French uh, film company, kind of like Kodak, um, hit on a way to uh, use a small camera to shoot film, to develop it, and to project it. They call it the cinematograph. Uh, and in 1895, they rented some space in uh, a uh, cafe in Paris. 
uh, and uh, exhibited it to train coming up, uh, people walking out of a factory, uh, some kids beside a lake, and people were agog because they'd never seen anything like that. One of the first people who sat in on the movie was a magician named uh, Georges Méliès. He's a stage magician. He saw the uh, film and said, my God, what a fantastic aid that would be for storytelling in movies, for making magic. Uh, and he particularly uh, sort of uh, figured that when he got himself a camera, went out on the street, uh, and in the middle of shooting, the camera jammed. He then reloaded. He shot again, and suddenly what had been a bus turned into magically a hearse, and suddenly said, oh my goodness, uh, here is a new world, here's a new way to tell stories, uh, and I can do it with this picture stuff. So I'm saying, yeah, that going all the way back uh, is a great place to begin. What were the fears at that time? I'm sure there were definitely all the, the pros of people thinking, oh, new ways to tell stories, but I imagine that people were very fearful of this new method. Well, there were. Um, the first uh, show, for example, um, it is said, who knows if this is true, but it is claimed uh, that when they first saw this uh, train arriving in a little suburban station in, in uh, the south of France, La Ciotat is the name of the city, uh, people saw the train coming at them and they went, ah, uh, because they're afraid the train was going to come right off the screen. Uh, it's unbelievable to us, uh, but th there was that level of reaction. The other kind of fear was that, uh, from the producer's point of view, um, this whole thing wouldn't last. The Lumiere brothers, who really, um, in large part with Edison and others, invented the business, got out of it real quick because their fear was it was an incredible money drain, that nothing would ever happen to the stuff, that there was no future in movies, uh, and they wouldn't even sell a camera to anybody because it was pointless. It was just a little demo that they ran, and it wouldn't go anywhere. So there were those kinds of, certainly those kinds of fears. So let's say someone's 25 right now and they say, well, you know what, I know exactly the type of film I want to make and I can do it myself and I can shoot it for cheap. Why should I learn about history? What can that teach them, knowing going back to 1895 or, or maybe even a few years before then to, to know the, the sentiment of the, the era? What can that show them? Why should they know more about the whole history of how film began? Well, I think it helps you uh, sort of see yourself uh, uh, as people have always been, somebody struggling uh, and attempting to find a way through a puzzling problem. Uh, and it helps you see that others have been there too, that you're not the first. You're not the first one to get up in the middle of the night and say, oh my God, what have I done? Or isn't that beautiful? Uh, others have had exactly that same thought. And amazingly, the others who thought that often have turned out to be famous, great, you know, giants. But when they were doing it, they didn't know what the heck they were doing. Uh, and I think it can be very liberating in an odd way uh, to come to understand how much struggle there was uh, for the first people um, to do this kind of stuff. It kind of gives you courage. Your site is called Film Courage. And I gotta tell you that uh, it is really profoundly encouraging uh, to uh, sit there and uh, just think about movie making from the point of view of the people who are doing it for the first time uh, and attempting to figure out, well, how do I put sounds uh, on top of a moving image and not confuse people? Or how do I chop up a scene uh, so that uh, I increase its excitement and energy and action because no one's done this before? 
So that's what I think you can get out of it. Uh, it can give you um, sort of, it can embolden you uh, because it realizes that all artists are really struggling with the same thing. It's always, everybody's always at the frontier, no matter where you are. It's always the newest thing. There's always some kind of technology that people are messing with and don't quite understand. Uh, and so that's what I think you can uh, learn. It can, in a weird way, make you not afraid. That's what I, what I think. Bob, the interview today is taking place in 2015. And I'm wondering, in your studies of film history, has the current landscape of film lost the art of storytelling? And if so, how? I, I kind of feel um, that uh, movies have uh, bifurcated and gone in two directions. Certainly, big-time productions um, have gotten way more interested in crashes and blood spurting and, um, you know, phantasmagoras of all sorts uh, that don't engage at least some audiences uh, as old movies did. Uh, and so I would have to say, if I can judge from my own viewing habits, my own interests, uh, that, yeah, I do think that movies have gone someplace else. Um, I find myself uh, gravitating towards watching Barbara Stanwyck on the screen uh, or um, watching Tender Mercies or watching Local Hero uh, or films that are uh, kind of humanly engaging. Uh, but these have become, you know, minority films. Uh, they are special uh, films. That's the kind of value, I think, of the independent cinema uh, because uh, corporate world, so far as I can understand, not being in it. The corporate world has gone into the entertainment business, and the entertainment business seems mainly like the amusement park business to me. Uh, and so there's lots of thrills and chills. But uh, as a kind of human experience, which I feel we really want from movies, we don't get it too much, or at least I don't get it too much. I, I go to a movie like, uh, you know, Oh, geez, um, X-Men or something, you know, and uh, it doesn't do anything for me. I, I just watch that stuff, uh, and there's one crash after another, one transformation after another. There's no heart for me. But when David Lynch uh, sends that old geezer on a, uh, you know, on a lawnmower off to visit his brother uh, in um, northern USA, uh, I find that moving and beautiful. Uh, and so I do feel there is a kind of movie which is still being made, which is telling stories and involved with human struggle. But uh, I must say that uh, we have gotten away from that pretty commonly. Uh, maybe it has to do with the zeitgeist of the time. I, I do feel we're sort of more dark and concerned uh, that 9-11 uh, changed us as a culture, as a country, and as people in a very real way. None of us talk about it very much, and none of us can sort of articulate it, and none of us recognize that others are feeling the same way. But I must say, I feel my own life uh, has got two parts, and there's before 9-11 and after 9-11. And I, I do think that's to some extent reflected in the movies before uh, and after, after that time, although the connection is not necessarily perfect. And, uh, and direct, but uh, Lord knows I just find myself, uh, and probably 
people from the 60s like me in general going to the movies per se less often than I used to watch Netflix or watch TV uh, but big budget production films uh, I rarely find myself going to because I want something else I go to a movie like Lives of Others which struck me as beautiful wonderful film um, and uh, it did win an Academy Award but it's atypical of what we're, we're doing right now so I do think uh, things have changed and I hope that we can uh, change them around again. One way I think we can change them around again, that we are changing them around, is that all these other little alternative um, you know, um, venues for movies are making it possible for people to do that kind of thing. In my book, uh, I wrote a little bit in the end there when I'm talking about documentary about Charlie Bit Me, uh, that little clip on YouTube. Uh, which I don't know if you've ever seen it, but uh, there's a little boy and his brother sitting on a couch in England and the one kid says the other Charlie bit me and ouch it hurts. And you think to yourself, what the heck is this? You know, Charlie bit me. When I wrote the book, or well, when the book came out, it was about a year and a half ago. <clears throat> when the book came out, uh, there had been 480 million hits. There are now 820 million hits. Obviously, that little exchange of two little children sitting on a sofa speaks to people in some fundamental way that people want, uh, and they're not necessarily getting in uh, big-time movies. So I, I do think that um, YouTube and uh, Vimeo and all these other uh, venues we have for releasing films uh, is one way that we can get back to that kind of stuff, because you can do films more cheaply and you can do them more intimately. And so I'm hoping that that kind of um, movie making will experience renaissance, but Lord knows the other kind of stuff is in control right now. What are the average ages of your students? You're, you're a professor? Yes, I'm a professor. Hey, my students are from what, 18 to 22 mainly. Okay. Uh, and they've grown up in this uh, contemporary world. And on, often I'm just astounded. I'm just astounded at what they're unfamiliar with. Uh, you know. Um, I had one wonderful student the other day, we were talking about great films and great performances and so on, and uh, I said something about Marlon Brando and uh, made uh, some comment about his uh, performance and he said, yeah, I'd like to talk, but, but who's Marlon Brando? And you know, uh, you say to yourself, oh my goodness, uh, we really have lost some connection with our own heritage. Uh, and that's one of the wonderful things you can do while studying film history too. You can bring that a little bit back. So they're 18 to 22 and uh, they're living in a world which is entirely post 9-11. Uh, and uh, I think they're more fretful and anxious uh, than students heretofore because we as people are more fretful and anxious uh, than we were. And I, I guess movies are reflecting that. Well, going back to the 60s, though, a time of change where in the 50s everyone was a good student and they obeyed their parents, and then I'm not sure at what point things started to unravel. I think it was Vietnam, right, that kind of set things off, and Kent State, or no? When, when, when did this whole... Uh, it was, I can tell you the day. Uh, it sure. was uh, November, what is it, November 22nd, 1963, Jack Kennedy got shot. Uh, and when Jack Kennedy got shot, the world changed. Um, it, it, just like 9-11, it was the same thing. Um, people suddenly felt that um, 
the world in which we had grown up in was totally transformed, uh, that a new level of danger and untrustworthiness um, had uh, arrived. Uh, and I, I would say that the assassination of Jack Kennedy was the 60s. The 60s really got rolling a few years later in 66 and 67. Before that, it was still more the 50s. But it was a very turbulent time and a very exciting time. Uh, and we all thought that uh, we're going to transform the world. And uh, to some extent we did, but maybe <laughs> the world transformed us. Right, so there was the civil rights movement, yes. uh, sexual revolution. Yes. What is different today? Because today there's, there's mistrust over the government, there's the fear of people reading our emails, there's the banks that many children, you know, witness their parents' homes being foreclosed on. Yeah. What do you think the difference is now? It's hard to say uh, because in many ways there are similarities. It just uh, feels um, like there's an underlying acceptance and complacency, even despite all those protests. Um, that's different than the 60s. Uh, in the 60s, uh, it's felt uh, a little realer. Uh, uh, in the 60s, it felt a little more dangerous. Uh, I happen to have had some experience for just uh, like a week or so uh, as an exchange student uh, in a southern college. Uh, and just being in that environment for me, a northern kid, uh, was really an incredible sort of experience. So uh, I'm not really a sociologist. I can't really explain uh, why they're same and why they're different. But uh, my goodness, um, that was a profoundly transformative moment. And this one, for all its troubles, doesn't quite feel the same way to me. Bob, before we were rolling, you told me quickly that you had an experience where a woman, a stranger, total stranger, came up to you right after 9-11 in a parking lot. I had gone to vote that morning. Uh, we uh, had a local election. I went into the firehouse. I passed the fireman's TV screen, and there was this image of the World Trade Center and a plane going into it, and we all gaped. Uh, and I went home uh, and called my wife and went to a store. I was in the parking lot of a store, and a woman came up to me, a total stranger, and said, that's it, our lives will never be the same. Utterly different now. And she walked away. And in retrospect, she was absolutely right. It's true. Um, we are a different culture now than we were then. We feel more vulnerable uh, and uh, more aware of uh, all the kinds of uh, dangers and bad things that could possibly happen. So I do think that's weighing in on us as a culture. And certainly my students seem more um, wary and concerned uh, than they were in the 60s. Also in the 60s, it was basically, it was a much more prosperous time. Uh, and you didn't worry about good jobs, uh, you didn't worry about careers because those things were around. But now, uh, for young people coming out of college, uh, it's a very serious concern. Uh, and, uh, you know, certainly for people who are in the arts, it's particularly serious. I have many, many students who are painters or sculptors or filmmakers or whatever, uh, and they love what they're doing, and then they say to themselves, so how am I going to support myself? How am I going to make a life of this? Uh, and many of them struggle, and many of them do, however, somehow find a way. It may not be what they thought, uh, but they do find some way to do that. And, uh, but it takes courage and strength. Would you say that's the number one question you receive from all your pre-graduates 
wh while they're getting close to finishing up their last years in college? Is that their biggest concern? They or don't usually put it in words. They put it in actions. Uh, and, oh. uh, you know, um, uh, I sit there and say, okay, so uh, what's next? Uh, and they begin to sort of say, well, you know, I don't quite know. Uh, I'm a little worried about that. Uh, I have to make some plans. Uh, I'm looking for this job and that job. Uh, so it's certainly on their minds in a way that I think um, hasn't been on people's minds for many, many years. That's one of the darker sides of uh, you know, our contemporary life. And so how do you feel that's reflected in the, the films that they're making today, that you're even the little things you're seeing on YouTube and in the, the big studio films? How do you feel that that whole unknown, because there really isn't a set path anymore. I know back in even my time growing up in the 80s, you know, if you did a certain you know, A, B, and C, you felt that you were going to get an outcome from it. And I yeah. think that the, all that is gone. It's, it's not around. So how do you feel uh, that's reflected in the... Well, I think some of the bigger movies today express that. I think a movie like Fight Club. Uh, Fight Club seems to me utterly, unbelievably anxiety-provoking and full of ang angst. Uh, and so I, I do think that films that um, do succeed now do to some extent uh, articulate that kind of, that kind of thing. So they don't actually say to you, I'm scared, I'm worried about how am I going to support myself, but you see it, you say, in their actions, in yeah. terms of... Yeah, people don't... Who wants to talk about that kind of stuff? Uh, you know, I do. I, yeah. <laughs> I want to make a video about it. Well, um, <laughs> maybe, uh, but most people want to sort of um, prevail over it mm -hmm. uh, and tough it out. Sure. Uh, so it's not something people talk about very much, but honestly, you do feel um, when you have been around for a couple of years, uh, that different times have different tempers, uh, and this particular time is uh, a troubling one. Do you feel that they think it's a weakness on their part? Do you see maybe a different level in, let's say, millennials, more so than Generation Xers, which is my generation, that maybe um, they don't want to talk about anything that's considered weak? Yes. Yes, I do, um, because one wants to be powerful and wants to be strong and wants to be in control of one's life uh, and there are so many reasons nowadays that um, young people um, can't do that or uh, have difficulties uh, achieving uh, simple things um, finding a way of making a living finding a mate and uh, the sort of level of uh, disaffiliation of sheer loneliness that I find in my students is really quite alarming uh, I just wish that more of them could uh, sort of um, live happily with friends uh, and find uh, a kind of meaningful way for themselves. But it's harder now. It's simply, it simply has gotten harder. I'm reminded of those horrible days, you know, after uh, World War II uh, when the Italian neorealists were making movies and they were making movies about people struggling on the street. Uh, and attempting to sort of make some sense of their lives after the world 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 war was over, uh, and they couldn't get film, and they couldn't find jobs. Uh, Italy was basically bankrupt. So those kinds of things are, to some extent, reflected in the world in general now. Bob, your book is Make Film History. Yes. Right. You said it came out about a year and a half ago. Yes. So which chapter from your book is the most important in your opinion, and why? If you had to choose, I know there. Are First among equals, or 
but but what, if you had to choose one chapter that you feel is really the essence of the book and what any 25 year old if they could spend one hour reading something put their phone down for one moment what chapter do you think would be the most vital in your book and life oh gosh that is a really hard hard question uh, and uh I guess it might be the one where I just explain what classical cutting is because it's the fundamental sort of tool of everything. Uh, we're talking about D.W. Griffith uh, and his discovery of classically cutting the scene uh, because uh, that's the basic vocabulary of filmmaking. You know, establishing shot, uh, detail shot, close up, get out of it, uh, this way of organizing things. Uh, I guess that that would be the most important one if you only could read one but there's so many of them that seem to me uh, seem to be crucial um, chapter on um, Jean-Luc Godard and Breathless um, I think uh, is extremely worthwhile um, because it enables you to see the connection between somebody's personality and their way of making a movie uh, you know um, in that chapter the, the book is a kind of a hybrid and that's what's sort of unusual about it. There's the book, and there's also the web page. And so in the book, uh, you read the description like books describe, uh, and then you go to the web page, and there are various kind of resources that sing and dance. But finally, you get some film footage to work with. Uh, and when you work with the footage, um, in many cases, you're working with clips from classic movies or else in this particular case, the one from Breathless, we shot some footage of our own to emulate a scene from Breathless. Uh, and um, you know, you begin to sort of see what the effect of jump cutting or not jump cutting the scene is. So I'd say it's really hard for me to pick any one single chapter, uh, but I think the um, really crucial thing to do is uh, to read the book and then mess with the exercises, whatever your level of filmmaking skill is. Uh, because the point of my book, which makes it different than other books, is that I'm going at this from the point of view of a creative person. Uh, you know, my idea in writing this book was that I wasn't going to simply dryly tell this happened, that happened, that happened, that happened, and so on. But I'm inviting people to sort of imagine themselves in the middle of a creative universe uh, and see if they can't discover what they would do given the same kind of problem and solve it for the first time. Uh, Godard in Breathless uh, started jump cutting because he had a practical problem. The movie was too long and what was he going to do? Uh, and so he simply said, hey, let's just cut. Uh, and that's what they did. Uh, and that sheer sort of necessity created a whole feel and gestalt for the film. So while it's hard for me to pick out any single chapter, I would say the crucial thing to do is to go to the web page and wet it with the book. And that's different than most film history books up to this point. Most of the film history books, they're wonderful and they're erudite and they're learned and they're broad and they're deep. But what they aren't is connected to the experience of making movies yourself. My book is sort of for people who would like to think that they have within it themselves to make a movie, or to at least think like a filmmaker, or at least understand what filmmakers are thinking. And so that's the crucial thing. It's not that any particular chapter is crucial. It's that joining the book and the exercises and the web page, that's the important thing. When you show clips uh, in your classes of, of classic films, 
which resonate most with today's generation, the millennials? Like when you show them, which which are the ones they have the most questions about, or they are that are most polarizing to them? You know what's really interesting? Um, the things that uh, really speak to them are the things which have always spoken to people. That in that respect, I don't think there's that many differences between millennials. I showed, for example, Ingmar Bergman's Wild Strawberries a few weeks ago, and they were blown away. They loved it. Uh, they were so enthralled by that film uh, and the revelation at the end of that movie when the old man lies in bed and for the first time in that film sees together his father and mother um, by that reflecting pool at the end of the film and you have this kind of Jungian vision of wholeness and completeness and so on. Uh, I don't care, they're 18, 19, whatever it was, that spoke to them. Uh, so I, I would say that things that speak to uh, people today are the things that have always spoken to them. They are moments which deal in human emotions uh, and uh, kind of mythic truth. Uh, all the razzmatazz in the world um, finally doesn't speak to people as deeply as uh, moments in film which are genuinely human, revealing some human person working through something. That is what still speaks to my film students. Well, you talk about temperament of the filmmaker, and I know Ingmar Bergman has been, you know, he's, he fought some demons of his own. He was a very complex man, but also very deep, yes. I believe, and so it's reflected in his films. Do you talk about the filmmakers and their, either the light films and their light temperaments? Yeah, or absolutely, and there's one thing that Bergman said, which I always tell my film students, because it seems to me the heart of the filmmaking business and the heart of movies altogether. In his autobiography, Bergman points out that when you watch a two-hour movie, you're actually watching a much shorter film. Because what's going on is that since the image is intermittent, light, dark, light, dark, light, dark, light, dark, um, there are in essence two projectors always at work. There's the mechanical one or the digital one, and then there's this one right here behind your pineal gland. And you are co-creating the film that you're watching and it's kind of inherent in the nature of movies themselves. Uh, so um, Bergman's sort of movies express, I think, that understanding that there's something mythic uh, and uh, deep uh, about any movie, uh, but particularly his. So that's why I, I personally feel that Bergman fantastic, and honestly, it's the great, the great guys of Fellini, Bergman, my students still love that and what thrills me is that I show them a movie like La Strada and they never heard of it, never seen it, and still love it. Bob, can you recommend the five or ten top films someone should see to get a great feel of the evolution of filmmaking? Let's suppose they had a weekend and they said I'm going to sit down and watch ten films that Professor Gerst has recommended. What are they? Well, I certainly would like you to watch uh, some Georges Méliès uh, magical movies like Cinderella or any of the uh, sort of um, Trip to the Moon. Uh, Trip to the Moon would be a fabulous introduction uh, to the magical side of filmmaking. Um, I'd like you to watch some kind of uh, classic documentary. Uh, the Nuke of the North would be good, or The Great White Light would be good uh, from the 20s. Uh, films which attempt to um, look um, realistically and honestly at the world, even though you always fail. So I want you to do those two things. Uh, I'd love you to watch uh, something like um, 
Jean Vigo's uh, Latalante uh, La uh, to see what um, French poetic realism was like. I'd love you to watch um, one of the um, Italian neorealist movies, Bicycle Thief. I'd like you to watch uh, something of the new wave, uh, Truffaut. Uh, then I'd like you to watch uh, after that uh, maybe, you know, something like uh, Apocalypse Now uh, and um, moving on, you know, maybe even being John Malkovich. Um, and I think uh, in that kind of trip you would have seen movie history play out pretty richly. I suppose there could have been some detours there when we, in 1927, 1928, when we had that fantastic sort of junction of silence and uh, sound. Uh, a wonderful silent film which shows what happened to silent movies when they turned into talkies is a movie called Lonesome by uh, Paul Viejos, uh, which is primarily a silent movie. It's about uh, a boy and girl, a young man and one wo woman who run off to Coney Island, um, where I spent many hours because my grandpa had a store in Coney Island. Um, and um, it's a beautiful sort of boy meets girl, boy loses girl, silent movie. But in the middle of it, suddenly, because it's 1928, they decided they sh had to shoot some sound scenes. Uh, and they're clunky, they're ridiculous, they're preposterous. It's like, you know, somebody's grading a, a, a finger over blackboard. Uh, and it just demonstrates, if you want to understand why it was that filmmakers said, oh, I don't want to go to sound, uh, it was that kind of thing. So that, that, that range of movies, I think, would be would be a wonderful introduction to uh, just what happened in movie history. Bob, as you watched us adjust our camera, I'm curious, will DIY filmmaking become the end of Hollywood? Uh, certainly we'll move it somewhere else than where it seems to want to go. Uh, and um, I um, know it will be the end of Hollywood. Uh, I think it'll be a new kind of movie, a uh, personal movie, uh, and much to be valued. Uh, I, I think that um, do it yourself, um, do it your own camera, do it on an iPhone, do it on wherever you can, uh, certainly is uh, going to um, change the, you know, the nature of movies. I know George Lucas was saying recently that he's dismayed at the nature of Hollywood today uh, and dismayed at the kind of big budget um, kind of um, razzmatazz, which is um, not personal. Uh, I think that uh, do-it-yourself movies are inherently more personal. Uh, and so whether or not it's the end of Hollywood or a new beginning, uh, it certainly will, will, will change things. That's, that's really all I could say about it. Well, you say that you know we, we watch movies to see the human experience, yes. to feel things. And now we've gone away from that. We have social media, which seems like it would be part of the human experience. It's actually not. I mean, we're representing ourselves online in a certain way that we want everyone to see us as. Yeah. So that's not real. But do you feel that because reality has has become so distorted that people want to make their own films that get back to that in terms of uh, reality TV is not that? It's, it's I, I think there's a real hunger nowadays uh, afoot uh, to return to those kinds of things. Uh, and if you can't do it in a big budget film, uh, which seems harder and harder to do so far as I can see, 
because uh, when you get involved with huge budgets, um, you have to worry about mass audiences, and you have to worry about what will play in Bombay, uh, as well as what will play in, in Queens. Um, so I, I do think that uh, you know independent films um, are returning us uh, to that experimental mode we were in way back in 1895, that in a weird way 2015 is not so different from 1895 uh, because nowadays you have all these people trying out new things, trying new ways, new machines, new devices. Uh, so I'm, I'm optimistic what it's going to do to Hollywood exactly. Uh, you know, I, I, I couldn't really say. Uh, I think that, however, something good uh, will come out of all of the stuff. Any thoughts on the future of filmmaking for the next 5, 10, 15 years? Well, uh, <clears throat> uh, I see it's um, much more interactive than it ever was before, uh, and uh, much more YouTube-y than it ever was before, uh, and uh, much more like people sitting around the fire, uh, you know, in the darkness, telling stories to one another than it was before. It'll become less professional, uh, more authentic, more real. I guess I really am a kind of independent film guy. The movies I really love are movies that uh, did, at one time or another, attempt to sort of bear personal witness to the world. There's a little movie called Little Fugitive. I don't know if you ever saw it. 1952, uh, Morris Engel goes out on the beach in Coney Island and does a movie about a little boy who thinks he shot his brother. Of course, it's not true. And so he spends a weekend on the beach in Coney Island. Uh, and Morris Engel is out there with a handmade camera, um, with a silent camera, which they dubbed finally. Uh, and it's a living, authentic film. So I'm hoping that we'll move in that direction. Uh, whether or not it happens, I don't know. Uh, but I think it might, and I would welcome it if it does. And just as the fear you spoke of in 1895, you were telling me, I'm not sure if it was on camera or off, that about the train coming yeah. toward the audience and people never seeing something like this and thought it was real. What fears do you see people have now about this new media? And maybe they're valid, maybe it's just fear of change? Well, I think everybody feels things are getting out of control uh, and that uh, it's very difficult to figure your way through this thicket of new media. Uh, and new opportunities. Uh, new opportunities are also sort of confusing because the career paths are not as simple and obvious as they were before. So that's, you know, that's uh, frightening, I think, to people. Uh, but there's enormous possibility. And I think we'll get through this stuff. I think it'll work. Uh, I'm optimistic about it. Um, but for the moment, uh, we're just running around trying to figure out our way. How can one tell that a filmmaker is before their time in the current day and not 20 years from now realizing, oh, yeah, they were a pioneer? <laughs> uh, I guess they're before their time if um, <clears throat> people simply don't respond, uh, if they simply don't emotionally get uh, what the heck oh, is, is going on in this film. Um, that's a difficult question, though. Uh, how can we tell whether they're before their time? Tell me some more. Yeah, it is. It, maybe I'm, I'm. Apologies if I'm not uh, explaining it correctly. I guess there's been so many people that were shunned during their time from their peers, whether it's Van Gogh or certain people that once they passed away and years, you know, had gone by, then people realized how, you know, 
much of a sort of a genius they were. And I'm just wondering if there are any sort of telltale signs. Um, but maybe that's it then, just people that don't sort of fit the mold, they don't fit in, they're not really regarded. You know, there's that, that biblical saying, sort of no man's a prophet in his own land type of yeah, thing. Yeah. And uh, maybe that's it. So maybe someone that's heralded as sort of a hero now maybe wouldn't be into it. Well, I, it's a hard uh, You know, it, it's very hard to say. Uh, uh, I, <clears throat> I would say that a uh, filmmaker from the past, like this Paul Vejos, made one movie, Lonesome. Beautiful, beautiful, fabulous film. It never connected. Uh, it languished for years. Um, it's been recently rediscovered. Uh, and people can now see it for the wonderful mythic film it was. But it didn't connect. Um, it, maybe it wasn't marketed right. Um, maybe um, he simply um, did not know who to bring it to. But it's. I, I think at the moment it's kind of hard to tell. Time tells all, and that's one of the sort of values of history, that uh, you can look back uh, and see uh, things that seem valuable aren't, and things that seem unvaluable are, and that's the, one of the benefits of thinking historically. Speaking of which, what films of each era do you think resonated the most? If we go back a hundred years, so each decade, let's say, which films resonated the most with that time amongst audiences? and why do you think that would be? Just maybe pick five or so. <clears throat> well, certainly The Birth of the Nation was incredibly sort of um, big in 1915. Most of it was kind of horrible um, to us now uh, because the racial attitude in that film is really reprehensible. Um, but for people in 1915 who were looking back at the Civil War, uh, that was the 50th uh, year anniversary of the Civil War, uh, I guess that film constellated their feelings about that war and their country uh, and so that was really a, a monumental uh, a monumental film um, I don't know um, Citizen Kane not really I don't think that really uh, did too much um, a movie like um, Stella Dallas uh, with Barbara Stanwyck um, I think resonated powerfully uh, because it uh, in her performance of the kind of loving mother who was nevertheless frustrated, I think, spoke to so many, particularly women, at that particular time. I think that really resonated. A film like, oh gosh, uh, High Noon, 1952, um, resonated fantastically powerfully because at that period when people were involved with the McCarthy era uh, and, uh, you know, attempting to understand who would stand by you and who wouldn't, I think that film resonated, you know, fantastically. Uh, you know, Breathless, my goodness, um, in 1960s, when the first time most of us saw Breathless, that resonated enormously and we couldn't figure out why. Because we thought, God, this guy doesn't seem to know anything about filmmaking. I mean, he's not matching shots right, there's miscuts here, but somehow or other, it had the verb, it had the feeling, it had the kind of gestalt of its age. And so uh, those kinds of movies, uh, it seems to me, powerfully resonate. And they wouldn't necessarily continue to resonate. There are movies that were real big in their day that don't mean too much anymore. So they were a hit then, but then they fizzled? Yeah, uh, because I, I think that they uh, spoke um, the 
feelings of their time. And that's different than having a truly great classic film like uh, a Bergman or a Fellini or Winter Light, uh, which are about eternal spiritual things and about mythic quests. Uh, and for some reason, you know, talk to people forever. 70s, 80s, 90s, anything of, of each decade that maybe spoke taxi to Taxi Driver, I think. Uh, taxi Driver really resonated. Why? Um, <clears throat> what about that I, character? I think <laughs> about that character uh, when uh, Robert Nero looks in the mirror and says, uh, you talking to me? You talking to me? Because there's no one else here. You're talking to me. I think that uh, kind of um, uh, potentiated out the spirit of the, that time. Uh, I think that was an incredibly sort of powerful film. Um, that, that's the kind of movie, uh, I think Fight Club certainly did for the same kind of reason because it's full of angst uh, and uh, confusion and conflict uh, and vigor and energy. Uh, so. I think movies that um, do speak out of their particular moment uh, are movies that you know resonate for their time. 80s? Was in Fight Club was 90s, right? Yeah. Uh, so 80s, what, what do you think? Oh, jeez. I don't know. <laughs> Big? <laughs> Big, yeah. <laughs> or, um, you know, Forrest Gump. Yeah. You know, Forrest Gump, but certainly. Well, 90s. Um, th that, that, that kind of film. Um, I, I, I think uh, movies that do, however, have some kind of mythic heart are, are movies which stay. Today's movie business compared to, let's say, 50 years ago, 60 years ago. Let me compare it to something a little earlier, which is uh, the studio system in 19, late 20s and early 30s, um, when people had seven-year contracts uh, and vast numbers of people were employed, uh, and there was a kind of um, trade identity uh, and a kind of security about the business um, that was in many ways beneficial uh, and which uh, kind of sustained American filmmaking was what made American movies different than European films. Because the European films, even back then, were more uh, organized the way we do it now. You pick up a company, you get some people together, you find a script, you find a producer, you put it together, you do it once, and it's all over. That's, that was basically the prevailing European model uh, for many years. Um, you know, the studio system I sense, not having been there, uh, but from what I hear about it, um, was a um, big family uh, and people felt happy and secure uh, working for it and took a kind of pride in doing a kind of workmanlike job, um, which is a different sort of head. I remember running into a wonderful old director um, years ago uh, and uh, I said to him, well, what's your greatest sense of accomplishment? And he said, I always brought my movies in on time. Uh, and uh, I always, uh, my movies always made money. Uh, and it was great. Uh, and that was my satisfaction. There was no talk in that about art or soul or character. I, I think so as a different kind of perspective uh, and a more industrially oriented, um, of, you know, sustaining uh, environment. That's different now when we meet people and pick up groups and uh, shoot uh, whatever we can shoot. Uh, 
it's um, really a much more fragmentary kind of life, I think, than it was for filmmakers back in the golden days of the studio. And I guess they felt um, sustained by it. It was hard work and hours and so on. But there was a, a kind of secure identity that I think they had that we often don't anymore. And then things changed and how? Well, when the studios broke up in the 50s, um, that was a really sort of a crucial break point for movie history. Uh, you know, uh, when stars instead of producers uh, were uh, sort of in control and people were writing their own contracts and financing their own movies. Uh, for better or worse, um, things changed and when studios lost their uh, distribution arms and their exhibiting uh, theaters, uh, things changed. Uh, and uh, better or worse, it's different. Uh, great things happened, but it's different. Aside from your book, where can someone else discover a history of film? A lot of good textbooks around. Um, you know, uh, David Bordell's textbook is great. Uh, Reginetti, uh, excellent. Um, watch old movies. Um, I find that, um, <clears throat> you know, watching old films on Netflix uh, is a great experience. Don't worry about what the heck you're looking at. I feel, uh, like Flaubert said, about novels, uh, that uh, how wise one would be if one knew only well five or six novels. I think that if you um, find an old movie that you like and it speaks to you, uh, you should watch it a hundred times. Uh, I think that is the greatest education about film history there is. I must have seen The Third Man by Sir Carol Reed a hundred times. Uh, and I think that that has taught me more about pacing in film, and lighting, characterization, writing, and so on, than any kind of broad survey. So I, I personally feel that there are textbooks around. Uh, you certainly can use them. Um, but the best thing I think you can do is just uh, watch old movies. Uh, and uh, when you find one that really speaks to you, buy it, watch it forever. Uh, and uh, it'll deepen your appreciation of where movies came from. So when someone watches a film more than once, what starts to happen, that same film? Let's suppose they've seen it twice now. Now they're seeing beyond certain things? You begin to see more. Uh, and you begin to see how the film is constructed. Uh, and you begin to sort of appreciate all the little things that all the craftspeople did. When you're watching, for example, The Third Man, uh, and uh, you notice that when the woman walks into the uh, room between two other men and she stands exactly in front of a portrait of a woman behind her and then they cut, uh, you realize that the editor is himself emphasizing the theme of the film, which is this kind of vagrant identity which is floating around this film, this mysterious person who is neither alive nor dead. Uh, and you begin to sort of get it more. You see it more if it's, it's a well-made movie. A great movie is a movie that repays that kind of attention. A lousy movie, you watch it once or twice and you're done. You're just, there's nothing more to it. But really good films, I think, uh, bear that kind of attention. Uh, and so you just begin to see what everybody has done to make that film rich and uh, full. And that's what makes a great movie.